Well, in the spring of 2001, so some time ago, I was finishing up my seventh grade year of middle school. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about seventh grade Craig this morning. I'll take you down a trip, a, a memory lane with me for a minute. You know, what else, was, what else was going on in the world in the spring of 2001? Well, I looked up this week, the, the most popular song at that time was uh, Hanging by a Moment by the band Lifehouse. And uh, yeah, that, that's a great song by a band that I listen to all the time. Anybody else listen to Lifehouse in the early 2000s? Man, I love Lifehouse. They were awesome. I think they're still around too, but... And the most popular movie uh, that year was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And uh, so we may be on like, you know, touchy ground right here. But how many Harry Potter fans do we have in the house? I'll just raise my hand first. We like Harry Potter a lot. You don't have to be afraid. <laughs> yeah, and if, if Harry Potter wasn't your thing, uh, Shrek came in a close second that year. So that was a funny one. Uh, the TV show Survivor earned an Emmy Award that year for Outstanding Nonfiction Program. I'm pretty sure that was one of the very first uh, reality TV shows. And for a couple years span, like, it seemed like every family was watching Survivor in their living room uh, one night a week. And so that was a big deal for, for a lot of people. And, and then I think back, the, uh, the Nokia 3310 was the most popular cell phone at the time. I probably should have shown you a picture, but um, although we didn't have access to the internet on our phone at that time. I remember the Nokia phones. They came with this awesome game called Snake. And uh, how many of you guys remember playing Snake on the Nokia phone? <laughs> Man, I wasted so much time in class when I probably should have been listening to my teachers a little bit more, just playing Snake. And you, you know, you get to a point where the snake, it just gets really long and you're like, how, how long can I take this thing? How, how long can I play this game? And then, you know, it gets hit and you, you lose the game. And so that's depressing. But, um, well, this was also the year when I was introduced to Jinko jeans, Jinko jeans, oh yeah. How many of you wore Jinko jeans? There <laughs> you go. Courtney, yes. That, just so you know, that's not a picture of me. So I wasn't going to subject you to that this morning. Well, th these things were like parachutes for pants. And they even came with an animal or like a graffiti slogan patch on one of the back pockets. Um, and they weren't very cheap, so I only had one or two pair, man. But when I wore these things, I thought I was so cool. You know, I, I thought I was uh, too cool for school, you know. My parents thought they were ridiculous. And uh, they obviously didn't know what they were talking about or, you know, didn't know what was in style. But it wasn't until my eighth grade year, just one year later, when I realized that actually my parents were right. You know, Jinko jeans were ridiculous. <laughs> That's an understatement. Now that I'm almost 35 years old, I, I, I think to myself, what in the world was seventh grade Craig thinking? I, I think I'll just blame peer pressure. You know, I, I, I gave into peer pressure. Well, I'm so glad that I've had a change from one way of thinking to another when it comes to Jinko jeans. I've had what we're calling a paradigm shift. And this was also the year when I got saved. So if God can get a hold of seventh grade Craig's life, a, a Jinko jean wearing fool, then friends, he can get a hold of your life as well. If God can use me, then he can use you. And today we're in week two of a series called Paradigm Shift. And we said last week that a paradigm shift, it's a change from one way of thinking to another. And we talked about how Although this phrase wasn't used until about 1962, the concept first appeared in the Apostle Paul's writing in the New Testament book of Romans almost 2,000 years ago. At Romans 12 verse 2, 
says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. I probably shouldn't have copied the behavior and customs of the world with those genes, should I? That was a bad thing. It says, but let God transform you into a new person. And then here it is, by changing the way that you, what's the word? Think. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You know, we said one of the most difficult challenges in our Christian walk um, is to live in the world, but not of the world. We're, we're to live in the world, but not become you know, more like the world. Instead of copying the behavior and the customs of this world, God's plan for our lives is that he would transform us into new people, new creatures, new creations. And this starts by changing the way that we think. Instead of having a secular worldview, God wants us to have a biblical one, to learn to see things and people and circumstances as he sees them. The promise is that as we grow in our faith, this, this transformation, this paradigm shift is the byproduct. As we grow to become more like Christ, a, a drastic change in how we think and behave takes place because of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not about just having a, a group of rules and then trying our best to follow those rules. No, it's this process of sanctification. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, making us more and more like Jesus as we grow in our faith. And Luke chapter 6 is where we're camping out for these three weeks. And it's in this chapter where Jesus established three new spiritual entities to replace three man-made practices that had really become worn out in the Jewish religion. He established a new way of understanding the Sabbath. We talked about that last week. He established a new way of thinking about a person's identity and their worth. We're going to talk about that today. And then he established a new way of understanding what it means to live a blessed life. And we throw that word blessed out a lot. Or you're so blessed or you got something and you're, you're blessed because of that. But, but Jesus ushered in a paradigm shift in how we think about what it means to live a blessed life. We'll talk about that next week. The religious leaders of his day, they, they missed the mark on all of these things, and they led God's people in the wrong direction. So through his own example, the way he lived his life, through his teaching, Jesus caused a paradigm shift in how people understood these things, ultimately helping them have a clear picture of what God's kingdom is really all about. So the second paradigm shift that we're going to learn about is found in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Now, I decided to pair this text with another passage in the New Testament that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And after I read these two passages aloud, I'll provide a little bit of context for us. You know, what does this mean for, uh, you know, the Christians in the first century? What were, how would they have understood it? What does it mean for our lives today? And we'll talk about some application. So if you're able to this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me as I read God's Word aloud. We'll begin with Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 12 through 16. This is what we read. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and then chose 12 of them to be apostles. So this was a pretty big group of people. And here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, 
Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and then Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Then we'll jump over to 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 26-31. The Apostle Paul is writing here uh, to a group of Christians who are part of the Corinthian church. They're living in Corinth. It says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, and I love this verse, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word today. Amen? You may be seated. Well, let's start by talking about Luke chapter 6, 12 through 16. Um, After giving his followers a new way of understanding the Sabbath, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. And the Bible tells us that he prayed all night because he was about to make an extremely important decision. He needed his heavenly Father's wisdom to do so. This is when Jesus chose 12 apostles from among the many disciples who were following him. A disciple, we've learned about this a lot, a disciple is someone who learns from Jesus to live like Jesus. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, God wants you to be a disciple who learns how to make more disciples, who can then in turn learn how to make more disciples. Um, God is, is a God of multiplication. He wants us to multiply the kingdom. Uh, an apostle is a little different. So those are the two words we're really working with here. You have a disciple, someone who learns from Jesus to live like Jesus, and then you have an apostle. What exactly is that? I think a one-sentence explanation is pretty simple. An apostle is a chosen messenger who is sent out with a specific task. A chosen messenger who's sent out with a specific task. Jesus had hundreds of disciples, but he only picked 12 to be his apostles. Now, knowing that a Uh, opposition against him was growing that would eventually lead to his crucifixion and his death, this was an important decision that he had to make. You see, these 12 men would make up his inner circle, some of his closest friends. They would advance the gospel, again, making disciples who would learn how to make more disciples. One thing that's worth noting before we move forward is that there are four lists in the New Testament of the apostles' names. There are four lists. Peter's name is always listed first, and then Judas Iscariot's name is always listed last. Now, even though he was a man with, with many flaws, we've talked about that several times, you know, God used Peter to lead these 12 men and to help build his church. You know, one of Peter's last acts before the crucifixion, was to deny Jesus three times, and to do so publicly, just to flat-out deny Jesus. But one of the first things that Peter did after the resurrection, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, was to go and proclaim the gospel to the masses. You know, God took this this broken 
man. He made him whole. And so we have these, these lists of these names. Judas, he's the one who ended up betraying Jesus. And I think it's interesting, the Bible's actually clear on this, that this is something that Jesus knew would happen even before he selected Judas to be an apostle. He knew that he would betray him, yet he selected him, he invited him into the group anyway. So why are we given the names of, of the apostles in four different places? Well, this is just one man's opinion, but I believe it serves as a reminder about how God can and does use ordinary people for his kingdom. In this group, that's what we're given. We've got a list of ordinary people. We've got fishermen. They were, they were blue-collar workers. One was a tax collector who was really hated by his own people. And then kind of the, the outlier, I guess if you talk about a kind of a unique profession, is you know, one guy was a religious zealot. He believed that his purpose was to deliver Israel from the tyranny of Rome. And you can kind of think of this guy uh, like a first century Jewish assassin. <laughs> that was really part of his role before he met Jesus and Jesus changed his life. And then he, he didn't do his, his zealot work anymore. He was, he was zealous for God, but he, he wasn't a zealot in that way. So these, these were ordinary men, yet God called them to follow him. He wanted them to, to learn from him, and then he sent them out into the world to represent him. I love this quote from A.W. Tozer. He once said that Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he's the one who loves you the most. You think about all the things that people know about you, your, your hurts, your habits, your hang-ups, your dirty laundry, you know, the things that your spouse knows about you, your kids, your friends in high school. Jesus knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he is the one who loves you the most. So even though there were some major issues represented in this group, Jesus showed them, it's an important truth, that their identity and their worth was more than what others could see on the outside. It wasn't just skin deep. And friends, today, that's, that's what I want to remind you about. That if God can use a ragtag group of men like this, then he can certainly use you. So I want to reread 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-31. I want to do this because it's an important passage that helps us understand this amazing truth. And this is where we're going to spend most of the rest of our time today. So 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians. Uh, these are, this is a young church, and this is what he says. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. I mean, do you, do you see the consistency here, the kind of people that God chooses to use. He says, instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus, and for our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. So the Christians in Corinth, a little bit about them, it also tells us a little bit about ourselves, uh, they had a tendency to be puffed up with pride. 
I think we see that in the 21st century church today, especially the American church. But as Paul highlighted on several different occasions, the gospel, friends, it leaves no room for personal boasting. Unlike the culture they lived in or the culture that we live in today, God is not impressed by a person's looks. He's not impressed with a, with a person's social status, with their achievements or their bank account. That's not what impresses God. These things hold no weight in God's kingdom. That's why Paul wrote these words. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. And he doesn't choose the people that society and culture deems important, <laughs> that deems popular. The person with the biggest bank account, the person that looks the best, talks the best. I mean, I mean the list goes on. That's, that's not the kind of people that God chooses. You think back all the way in the Old Testament, this is consistent. You know, when God chose Moses, he was afraid to go and talk to Pharaoh. And when he chose David, he just went down the lines of his brothers. And uh, the people around them thought, well, surely it's got to be this brother. He's tall. He's handsome. It's got to be this brother. He speaks well. And they just go down the line. And then you have, you have David, who's kind of this little scrawny guy. But God looked past what we see on the outside. He looked at the heart. That's what matters to God. That's going to lead us to our first point today if you're taking notes, that God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. So just like Jesus' early disciples and the men He selected to be His apostles, the Corinthian church was primarily made up of just regular, normal, everyday people. These were men and women who were terrible sinners who had been saved by God's amazing grace, as Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary. And before his own conversion, the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, he was a self-righteous Pharisee whose sole mission in life was to persecute and destroy the church. That's, that's what he was about. Sometime later, after he had come to know Jesus, he was writing to a young pastor by the name of, of Timothy. And Paul said this about himself. He's just, he's just writing a little biography, I guess. He's saying, 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. So why did Jesus come? To save sinners. And then he said this about himself, and I am the worst of them all. This is the guy who wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is saying this about himself. He's saying, listen, you, you look around at the crowds, you look at the people that, that we're ministering to, that we're sharing this, this good news of grace with, and he's saying, of all the sinners that you could meet, he said, I'm the worst of them all. I appreciate that humility. I think it kind of brings us down a notch this morning. You know, Paul didn't have to get his act together before God started working in his life. The resurrected Jesus met Paul on a road that, that led to Damascus. What was Paul doing at the time? He was, he was headed to Damascus to persecute Christians. That's literally how his day started, but it's not how it ended. You see, one day he was a self-righteous sinner who hated the church. At the very next day, he was a forgiven sinner who gave up his religion in order to live for Jesus. Having experienced such a dramatic conversion... Paul was always unapologetic when writing to other people about what it means to live for Jesus and follow Jesus. He didn't say, you know, I don't know if this is going to hurt your feelings or not, or I don't know if I'm saying this too harshly. 
In fact, there's one passage that he wrote that he recognized that it was really hard for them to hear. One letter that he wrote, it was really hard for this group of people to hear, and he didn't apologize about that. Instead, he was excited because God got a hold of their lives. Uh, there was grace and truth. And, uh, you know, Paul's a guy that I think probably had to learn how to approach people with grace. He was really good on the truth side, you know, just kind of hammering people with the truth. But again, it's that process of sanctification. God was making him more like Jesus. And he recognized that grace and truth, it, it wins out. So the next day, you know, he was a forgiven sinner who gave up his religion in order to follow Jesus. And he knew that if God could get a hold of his life and use him as a kingdom worker, then God could certainly use the messed up group of people in Corinth that he was writing to. And that's again why he said, Dear brothers and sisters, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. He was reminding them about where they were and about where God had brought them. And friends, sometimes we need to just pause a little bit. We, we need to reflect on this and think about this and thank God for this, that I was once one way and now I'm different. And that's because of Jesus. So we have this reminder that God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. It's important we remember that today. I want to share four verses with you this morning. These act as four reminders about who you are and about who God is. It's really about identity. These verses, they just reinforce the truth about how God can use anyone. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life in our place, so we don't have to worry about whether we measure up or not. We don't have to go through life striving to be recognized in this way. Our identity and worth are found in Him, not in our looks, not in our achievements or in what others think or say about us. Our identity is deeply rooted in Jesus. And in Galatians 2.20, I love this verse, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer seventh grade Jinko Jean wearing Craig. Aren't you glad? Amen? I'm sure you have a past too. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So our identity is no longer ours, but is in Christ. We, we can step into our calling secure in who we are. That means you can live your life by trusting in God's plans and his direction because he loves you and he gave himself for you. Romans 3, 23 and through 25 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God where we're justified when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So if you are in Christ, if you are a, a Christian, and all of your failures, all of your shortcomings, your past, present, and future are covered by the blood of Jesus. And friends, you can build your life on this amazing truth. Amen? And then finally, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Each time he said, and friends hear this, my grace is all you need. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. 
So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. How many of you have weaknesses in your life? Yeah, we all do. What is this saying? Well, we don't need to try and live life in our own strength anymore. We can give that up. See, if we do, we're just going to fail. Instead, in our weaknesses, we get to witness God's strength at work in us and through us. It's when we're weak that God is strong. So I have found the, in my life the, the aspects of my personality that I don't like, the things that I'm afraid of in life, are usually the areas where God shows up the most. These are the areas where I'm, I'm humbled the most. Now, I used to hate getting up in front of people and speaking. You know, I've talked about how in ninth grade, um, I signed up for, um, spe- uh, what, what was it? Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the word. De- uh, no, not debate. Uh, oh my goodness. You ever have like those, those, what's the word? Every single day, the older I get too. <laughs> I'm glad I'm, I'm not alone in this. We'll just call it speech and debate, but it wasn't that. It was kind of like that. But I, I've said before, I just joined this group because there was a lot of girls in the group, and I wanted to go to you know, New York City on a trip at the end of the year. And, um, but I found that God even used that. He, he took what, what I thought I, I wanted at the time, and he used that to start shaping me. I mean, I hated to, to speak in front of people. I didn't think I was any good at it, but now... There, and I still don't think I'm great at it, but there's nothing, friends, that I look forward to more than being able to teach our church family about Jesus every single week. That's what I love to do. God's power works best in my weakness. And there are so many distractions in this world, it's easy for us to find reasons, or you could call it excuses, for why we can't or shouldn't be doing what God has called us to do. And we need to learn how to combat these excuses, these, these lies, by going back to Scripture over and over again, reminding ourselves of who God is, reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ and what our Heavenly Father has promised to us. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Maybe you've thought about serving in some way and you think, well, I don't know if I'd be any good at that. But you're kind of feeling that, that nudge. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. He's telling you to take a step of faith. You're thinking, I don't know if I'd be any good at that. Well, well great. Let God's strength shine through your weakness. Sign the dotted line saying, you know what, God, I know that I'm, I'm in my own strength. I'd probably fail at this, but I'm going to I'm gonna have to take a step of faith. I'm going to have to rely on you in this area. Whether it's serving on the worship team or helping with kids ministry or going on a mission trip overseas, that, that can be pretty scary. Take a step of faith. See how God uses that. God's the one who will equip you. He's the one who will be your strength. He provides the grace that you need. Number two, if you're taking notes, God calls us for a purpose. God calls us for a purpose. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, we see this so clearly. He says, instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. 
So God chose the foolish, the the weak, the despised to show the rest of the world that what we all really need is Jesus. The rest of the world finds their value and social status and financial success and power and recognition, but none of these things truly satisfy. None of these things lead to eternal life. Paul was reminding these believers about how the good news of the gospel puts to shame the high and mighty people of this world. And friends, if if we're in Christ, we've been called to share the hope that's only found in Jesus. It's, It's a hope that we've experienced with a world that's desperate for the good news of the gospel. The world is desperate for for good news for a change. I think our sin nature, our, our, the, the, the human nature side of us just wants to find fulfillment and pleasure in things that are just temporal. And Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. If you follow Jesus, you, you won't hunger and thirst for those things anymore. You will be fulfilled and satisfied in Christ. And we have the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with the rest of the world, the hope that they desperately need. This year, uh, OCC will celebrate 50 years of ministry in this location. Isn't that awesome? 50 years of ministry right here. And obviously, this congregation is is a little bit older than that. But we're going to take time this fall, and we're going to celebrate that together. And and I was just reflecting on this this week. You know, throughout that time, uh, there have been hundreds of stories of how God has transformed the lives of people through the power of the gospel. Hundreds of stories. When I first got hired on here, I tried to have this mindset, and I tried to remind myself of this, that God was, was moving and God was working in this place long before I arrived. And by His grace, He's going to continue to do the same long after I'm gone. And in some ways, I'm a steward of this role. And, and you, as you serve through the, the ministry of the local church, you are a steward of those different ministries. And, and I think being a steward, God wants us to multiply that, and he wants us to hand it off better than the way we found it someday to someone else. It's like carrying a baton, running a race. You're, you're just running a race right now, and someday you'll have the opportunity to hand that off to someone else. And so I was just thinking about this, that how many lives have been changed over the past 50 years in this location, in this very room, the sermons that have been preached about the hope that we have in Jesus, about the good news of the gospel, the hearts that have been changed because of the preaching of God's word, because of the the work of the Holy Spirit. And just over the past four and a half years, there have been at least 32 powerful gospel stories, many of which are sitting in this room this morning. We've seen children and single adults and married couples and whole families give their lives to Jesus and be baptized into Christ. With every single one of these stories, God gets all the glory. Amen? There's no room for boasting about ourselves in the gospel. We boast in the Lord. I've had conversations with many of you about how God has given your life meaning and purpose. And some of these conversations have been recent. You were living one way, and then Jesus changed your life. You, you had a paradigm shift. So each week when we come together, we're, we're learning more and more about how your life is not a random accident. You're, you're not just a clump of cells 
But instead, you were created and called for a purpose. God had a plan in mind when he made you. That's something we can celebrate. That's something we can be excited about. Amen? So I don't know what you've heard this past week about yourself, about your identity. But friends, in Christ, you are valued. You are loved. You you have a purpose in life. And that leads us to our third and final point today. And that is that in Christ, we have everything we need. In Christ, we have everything we need. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 through 31, Paul wrote that God has united you with Christ Jesus. And for our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. There it is again. So since every believer is in Christ, we have everything that we need. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. He says, by his divine power, God has given us everything that we need for living a godly life. God has given us everything that we need. We have received all of this by coming to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. So there are at least three things that stand out to me in this verse. Uh, First, uh, the source of what's necessary for living the life that God has called us to live is his divine power. It's God's divine power. That means it's only through God that we can live the life that he's called us to live. It's only through God that we have the, the blessings and the abilities to do what Peter wrote about throughout the rest of this passage. And then second, I see God's goal for our lives. Did you know that God has a goal for your life? You know, we set goals in life. Maybe it's a, um, a fitness goal. Maybe it's a financial goal, a parenting goal, a marriage goal, a work-related goal. We set goals, and God has a goal for your life. See, we've been given everything that we need for living a godly life. That's, what, that's God's goal for your life, is that you would live for him, that you would live faithfully for him. And he doesn't just leave you to your own devices to try and figure this out. No, he's given you everything that you need to do this. And then finally, we can experience the life that God has called us to live only, Peter says, only by coming to know him. According to Peter, truly knowing God is foundational. So let me ask you this question, and it's rhetorical, but do you truly know Jesus? Are you walking with him and living for him every day? Do you know Jesus? Having a relationship with Jesus is what it's all about. And I would point out that knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as truly knowing him. You can come to church every single Sunday. You can learn a lot about Jesus without ever getting to know him. You can have a lot of head knowledge that doesn't turn into heart transformation. It doesn't move from the head to the heart. We have four boys And they're homeschooled, and right now uh, they're learning about 19th century artists like Van Gogh and Winslow Homer. But guess what? My boys don't know these men, partially because they're dead. But even if they were alive, they wouldn't know them. They know a lot about them. They could recite all kinds of facts, when they were born, what they went through uh, throughout their life, the paintings and the things that they they did, their accomplishments. They could tell you all about this. But they don't know these people. See, there's a difference between knowledge and relationship. Knowing about a person and then truly knowing them. J.I. Packer once said, 
That there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. Let that sink in a little bit today. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. Why is that? Is that because you can do all of this on your own? No. It's because where you're weak, God is strong. In Christ, we have everything that we need. So when Jesus came on the scene, he ushered in a new way of thinking about a person's identity and their worth. Instead of basing these things off of social status and financial success and power and recognition, instead of striving for these things that are just temporal, they're not eternal, the things we only see on the outside, Jesus helps us learn how to see people as he sees them. And part of what a message like this does, I think, is it causes us to take a step back and reflect a little bit and think about our lives a little bit. Are there areas where we are just, with everything that we have, we're just trying to pursue those things to find our value and our identity in them? Maybe it's being a mom, and your whole world is wrapped up in that and the successes and the failures of that. And you allow that to define you. Or maybe it's your, your, your job. Maybe it's the amount of money that's in your bank account or how many people know you and recognize you. I mean, the list goes on and on. But friends, that's not the way that God sees us and that's not the way that he determines value. Today, we can be reminded that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And be reminded that we're called for a purpose. And that in Christ, we have everything that we need for living a godly life. Friends, if God can use me, then he can use you. Would you allow him to use you?